thank you for being here. I appreciate you all very much. I'd love to tell you that I've got lofty theology for you today. I'd love to tell you that I am going to educate you about deep theological truth. But as a practical matter, what I've got for you today is a little bit different. Oh, don't get me wrong, I've mixed in some stuff just for fun, but the main meat today is just a glimpse into everyday life. Everyday life for Paul, and hopefully everyday life for us. So I want us to look at it, and I want you to look at it in terms of your everyday life. Everyday life, now that can mean something pretty profound, there are times where we have these incredible broad pictures of God that are given to us in Scripture, and we've just finished one of those with Philippians 2, eh, 6 through 18 or so, where Paul has really profoundly spoken of the character of God. But then also in Scripture, you'll find things that are just normal life. And that's where, that's the road Paul's on today. Now, you've heard me say before, but I want to repeat it here, that some people, either consciously or subconsciously, tend to put life into three buckets. There's the bucket that is tisk, tisk, no, no, stay away from it, sin. I made it the red bucket. No, stop, don't go there. And then there's the blue bucket, the color of the heavens. I made that the spiritual bucket. These are the things that make you speak in a deeper tone of voice. These are the things that cause you to lift up your head, to be very, very spiritual. These are the things that you think about with church. These are the things you think about when you listen to KSBJ. These are the things you point out to your spouse when your spouse needs them pointed out to him or her. The spiritual bucket, going to church... Uh, uh, praying before your meals or when someone needs prayer. You know, th those are spiritual things. So we've got the sin bucket, we've got the spiritual bucket, and then we have just green ordinary life, the normal bucket. These are just your everyday mundane things that don't really count as spiritual and don't count as sin. This is just what you, you know, eating and and, uh, uh, you know, brushing your teeth, whatever it may be. You know, and, and, and Paul does not divide things into three buckets. He just doesn't. Paul's a two-bucket man. Paul, in his writing to the Colossians, said the following. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I don't know about how you grew up, but I'm 60 years old, and I still remember growing up, my father, maybe mom you did a little bit, but I remember this more with dad, used to say to me, don't make me ask you twice. I gather from the murmured chuckles that you have either heard it or said it or both. Don't make me ask you twice. The insinuation is once should be enough. Paul doesn't say something here once. He doesn't say something here twice. He says something here three times. And that should get our attention. He says, one, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever, doesn't matter. 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Whatever you do. And then he says, in word or deed. Now in Greek thought, you could categorize the sum total of life in those two words. Either word or deed. Word included, logos in the Greek, or logos if you pronounce it that way, included uh, what you think, ideas, things that aren't physically seen. Work, ergos, is stuff you do, it's the physical stuff. So everything is either something you're doing or something you're thinking. So Paul has said now twice, whatever you do, in word or deed, three, do everything in the name of Jesus because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done. Do everything. So he says it three times. There's not a normal bucket for Paul. Get rid of it. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you're doing everything because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That means if you're walking down the street, you have a choice. You're either walking down the street in sin or you're walking down the street spiritually because you are putting on as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Above all, putting on love and the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts, being thankful. That's all of the stuff Paul said before he said, so whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. You're walking down the street. You, where are you going? Why are you going? Are you on time? What are you thinking about? What's your motive? All of these things are involved in anything that you do. If you're doing laundry, you can be doing laundry with sin or you can be doing it spiritually. You can be doing it with a compassionate heart, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. You can be doing it with spite, with anger, with hatred, with murmuring. When you're brushing your teeth, you can be brushing your teeth with sin or you can be doing it spiritually. If you're going to be around someone, please brush your teeth. It's kindness. No. I, everything you do, your brain is at work regardless of what you're doing. Constantly be living with Jesus Christ as your reference point, as your motivation. You can brush your teeth because your mother makes you. Or you can brush your teeth because you know that God has given you your body and you want to take good care of it. And you want to show respect to other people. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are involved in everything we do. You're doing a budget. You're paying your bills. You're doing your taxes. You can do that sinfully or you can do that spiritually. Anytime you're doing that, you're setting priorities. Anytime you're doing that, you're choosing honesty or not. There's so much involved in everything we do. And we need to not look at things as normal activities. We need to understand we do everything in the name of Jesus. Everything we do, every day, we've only got two buckets that it's going to fit in. <clears throat> and we want to fit it in the right bucket. So with that, let's look at this everyday life stuff today. And I want to look at it through three different sets of glasses. Your three points for seeing this lesson. Point number, uh, well, that's just two. And I thought the other glasses ought to have some punch. Like, so three things. First of all, you can, I want to talk about friendship. Second, I want to talk about identity. Who are you? And the third thing is sensitivity. So with those three points, let's start with friendship. <clears throat> now Paul's just finished this incredibly profound statement about uh, uh, have the same attitude in yourself which was also in Jesus Christ. Actually, he says Christ Jesus. He inverts the order there. Who, although he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but he emptied himself and took the form of a, of a slave. 
being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul then challenges them to walk in the same humility, to have the same attitude that was in Christ. And as he goes through that, he finishes in verse 18, and then he moves to a new subject. And that's where we are here in chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. The implication being Timothy will go see them and Timothy will come back and report back to Paul. Now Paul says something here and this is a great passage because anytime you're reading your New Testament and you see that word hope, I want you to always remember that the Greek word hope does not mean the same thing as our English word hope. There's just nothing better we got to translate it with. And so hope, elpizo in the Greek, this is the verb form, elpizo, I hope. Paul uses it in that exact form. It means a confident expectation. See, we'll use the word hope in English, and in English, hope connotes a certain uncertainty. Oh, I hope I win the lottery. By the way, you won't. But oh, I hope I'll win the lottery. We use hope. You know, I hope Texas Tech will go undefeated this year in football. Ain't going to happen. I, look, it's not going to happen. I mean, I'm a big Red Raider fan, but it ain't happening. But, but hope connotes uncertainty in English. You know, I hope I win the lottery. But in Greek, that word hope implies a confidence of a future event. So you could say, use the word right, you know, my wife could say, I hope I have a cup of coffee in the morning. Well, I got to tell you, the quickest way to get hurt is to get between my wife and the coffee machine in the morning. <laughs> She's going to get that cup of coffee. She'll wake up extra early to make sure she has time to do it. I mean, me, I'm going to sleep right up until the moment I've got to be in the shower. She will set an alarm to have extra time to make sure she can get coffee and still get her day done. So for her to say, I hope to get some coffee in the morning, I mean, come on, she's getting coffee in the morning. So when Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, he's talking about a confident expectation. He thoroughly expects to see Timothy or to send Timothy to them soon. Not yet, but soon. Now, and they're reading it that way, and, and they're not reading it like Paul's just, oh, it'd be nice, he's just being nice and sending us a platitude. No, he thoroughly expects it. Now, this makes a difference not just here, and I make this point clear because I want you to see this anytime you see that word hope in your New Testament. And sometimes it doesn't make any difference, like Luke 6.34. Um, do you have to know what the word means in Luke 6.34? Well, you're going to get it either way, but let me show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Luke 6, 34, Paul says the following. <laughs> if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Okay, you say, well, the word hope's not in there. Oh, it is in the Greek. They just don't translate it hope because you wouldn't get the effect of the Greek. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive. If you're lending to people you hope will pay you back. That's not a lottery hope. That's not the English idea of hope. That's the Greek idea. You thoroughly expect to get paid back. 
It's a, something you confidently expect. If, if, if you, you don't understand that in the passage, you don't get what Jesus is saying. Let me give you another one. Luke 23, 8. Same word, hope. Now here it starts making a little bit of a difference. Go back to where it is. Um, Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean, and so he learned he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, and he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wasn't, oh, gee, maybe I'll get to see a sign. He thoroughly thought Jesus would do it. He was really stoked. Which is also why he's so upset after Jesus doesn't perform like a circus clown or a magician. He was, hey man, I get to see this. I'm going to see it. I mean, he's King Herod. He orders Jesus to perform. Jesus ought to perform. He confidently expected Jesus would do something cool. Oh, maybe it would just be a sleight of hand. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Or maybe he was going to walk across the, the water somewhere. Jesus wasn't his circus clown. And that got him upset. But that's the word hope. That's the idea behind it. And so if we see that in the idea, it makes a difference in passages like Luke and, that I've just looked at. But look at passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 1 Corinthians 15, 19. When we understand what this word hope means, that it's a confident expectation, these passages start taking on a little bit more of a meaning to us. So 1 Corinthians 13 is that big chapter on love. And look what he says about love, starting with verse 4. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast, and it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How does love hope? Well, the idea behind it is a, a, a service love, which is an agape love, where you're serving others, loving in service. You hope means you confidently expect it to work out. You're confidently expecting the best. You're not just, huh. you're living with a confident expectation. Even more important, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 19 on the next page. Paul says, if Christ, I'm starting in verse 17, has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're all still in your sins. And those who've fallen asleep or died in Christ, they're gone. They've perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we thoroughly expect, if we are confident that this life is all there is, then we are deluded people. But our confident expectation, Paul's implying, is that there is a resurrection because Christ was resurrected from the dead. And so will be all who are in him. And so we can confidently expect a resurrection. If we're confidently expecting nothing more than this life, then what a waste it is to even be here on a Sunday morning. You say, well, no, I think Christianity is a good way to live. Well, I, I, I've got some options for you. If, the, if this stuff's fake, if this is not real, no. But it is real. It's real enough that Paul writes these letters. It's real enough that we live this life. It's real enough to give life meaning. It's real enough to have, give us a confident expectation of tomorrow. 
So Paul says, I confidently expect in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Now look at that, in the Lord Jesus, in Curio Yesu. In the Lord Jesus is Paul's equivalent to us saying, God willing. In the Lord Jesus is equivalent to us saying, God willing. So I can tell you, I'm going to be back here next Sunday to teach. But I can also say, I hope to be here next week teaching. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I'm confidently expecting to be here next Sunday to teach. But my confidence is, this is all if God wills. This is all in the Lord Jesus. That's the idea here. See, this is part of that sin spiritual bucket stuff. Paul says, I'm making my plans in this world under the direction of the Lord Jesus. I submit my plans to his approval. So assuming the Lord Jesus okays it, I plan on being here next Sunday teaching. To the best of my ability, I'm going to be here, but it's only under the Lord Jesus. It's this idea, not simply God willing, in other words, God may intervene, but I'm submitting all of my plans, everything I expect to do, I'm submitting it to the Lordship of Jesus. He holds the ultimate trump card. He is able to win the trick in spite of my best desires. Now, I find it interesting that Paul is sending Timothy for this. And I want you to ask this question. Why does Paul rely on Timothy to be the one to go to the, the, the Philippians and then come back to Paul and report back? Remember, Paul's in prison at this point. Well, look at what he says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. And then the next verse says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, Paul's got a fun little pun here. And we're not reading it in Greek, so we don't get the pun. Yet. But I want to give it to you. Because it's really kind of cool. Here's what we've got. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, God willing, to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered. Cheered is you, psucho. That's a P-S put together. P-S sound. E-U, you, psucho. Now, then he says, I have no one like him. Whoops. There we go. No one like him. Like him is Izo Pasukon. That's Izo, are you Pasuko? This is Izo Pasukon. The endings just change based on how they are in the, used in, in the word. But this is two words, E-U, put together with pasuko. This is ISO, put together with pasuko. So let's have Greek class for a moment. Both of these are unusual words. They're unusual because of this. They are what we would call if we were in seminary, in Greek class, a hapax legomenon. Comes from two Greek words. Hapax means only once. Legomenon means to say or to speak. So a hapax legomenon means it's the only time that this word's used in the entire New Testament. This is not an ordinary word for Paul. This is not one you read about all the time. This is not one of these where look at how it's used over here in Luke or look at how it's used in Acts or Corinthians. No, this is the only time in the entire New Testament either of these words are used. Which makes it useful to pay attention to why Paul may be using them. Because they actually fit together quite well. Oh, Paul could have said, 
so that I too may be cheered and used a different word for cheer. He uses a different word for cheer a lot. But this time he used you psucho. Psucho means your soul, your essence, your personage. You means good. So you psucho means good souled. I want to send Timothy to you so uh, I, that I can hear back and, and my soul can be enriched. I can be good souled. My, my, I can feel good about it. I could be cheered. And then he says, because I don't have anyone like him. Izo, like Izo bars in science, Izo means like, sold. So he's got this really cool thing. He's saying, I want to send Timothy so that I can be good sold when he gets back as my like sold brother, giving me the, the story. It's just a nice little pun, but what it does is it shows one of the reasons Paul relies on Timothy is because they were soulmates, they were kindred spirits. Kindred souls. They were close. He calls Timothy his son in the faith. And that acorn did not fall far from the tree. It's a very tight-knit relationship. And I love that practical aspect of this passage. That we see Paul is not just some fella who's out there, you know... One man show lone wolfing it in this life. He's got someone that he's very close to. Actually, he's got a lot of people he's very close to. But one that he's pointing out here in a way that's got to make Timothy feel good. Oh, if your mentor said that about you, how would you feel? If your mentor, if the person that you looked up to more than anyone else in the world the father you didn't have looks at you and says, we're like soulmates. It would mean something to me. It should mean something to you. I got to introduce my nephew to someone here today. And I thought, nephew? How do I call him my nephew? He's so much more to me than that. He's a kindred soul. He's like a son to me. You know, that's, that's an affirming relationship, and that's a relationship that's here. Now, there's more reasons Paul wants to send Timothy. It's not just that. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. There's no other like sold. I don't have another isopsukon. There's no one else like him who's a kindred spirit to me right now that I can send who's going to be concerned, genuinely concerned for your welfare. Because all these other yahoos that are out there that might come seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See, Timothy put Jesus first. And that's how he was like sold unto Paul. He says he will genuinely put Jesus first. And in addition to that, he's going to put you second. And he'll put himself last. That's the very thing that Paul has been calling them to do with the lofty theology that he told them about to be like Jesus who gave of himself. And he says that's the way Timothy is. What does that mean? That means in your day-to-day -day walk, in your life, you want to be like Paul, like-minded, like-souled? You want to be an isopsukon of Paul's? Then you need to be asking yourself while you're walking, while you're parapetoing around, while you're walking around, what, what, what am I doing with this life? What are my priorities? What is important to me? By the way, I think I ran someone off the road getting to church today. I apologize for that. That was not right. But my priority was getting here. No. <laughs> See, I got to be careful, even in my driving. And I didn't run someone off the road. 
but I did cut in front of someone who then followed me all the way to church into the parking lot, and I felt really bad about it. But it gave me a good illustration of how I was driving sinfully instead of spiritually, even driving. He says, he goes further, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I love this passage. How like as a son with a father, he served with me soon in the Greek. Paul does not say he served me. Paul says he served with me. Paul doesn't see this as Paul's mission. Paul is no more than a slave to Christ. He starts out the letter, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Slaves. Here's the word, he has served with me. um, I can't see it too well. Sorry, I have to step back. Edulesin means, it's from dulezomai. I don't know what the verb form is, but dulos is the the noun. It means a slave. He He has served, a servant. He has served with me. He has been a slave with me for the gospel, but it's with me. We, we don't, look, I, I, I don't stand up here and teach you in the sense of this is what I do for you. I'm sharing with you what God has taught me through my studies, I hope. You know, when, when, when you're serving in the church, you're not, you're not doing anything less than serving the very Lord Jesus and his gospel. And so we all serve together in whatever roles we may have. But we are in this together. This is teamwork. This is not a spectator sport. I mean, Paul starts his letter out. Paul and Timothy, bond servants, servants of Christ Jesus. He served with Paul. And I really like that. Paul continues and says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul wants Timothy to be able to take word back about him as well. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul's hoping and trusting that he'll get to come as well at some point, that he'll be released from his imprisonment. But I love this picture of friendship. I don't want us to just see that. I want us to see identity as well. Specifically, one fella in particular. Yes, It's time for introductions. I give to you the one, the only, Epaphroditus. Or should I say, Epaphroditus. Or I could just be from Lubbock and say Epaphroditus. But the Greek would be pronounced either Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus. Say, well, wait a minute, what's the difference? Well, it's that letter right there, that E. Epsilon. So we've got um, thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Old, old, old manuscripts. And someone may have told you somewhere, oh, Even the Bible, we don't know what it really says. There are all of these different errors in the Greek manuscripts and all of these discrepancies. There are, somebody counted, over 10,000 differences among these Greek manuscripts. And do you want to know which one of them is? Does Epaphroditus have an E in his name or not? That accounts for dozens of the differences. See, those differences are just silly. They're clearly transmission errors. Like this one probably arose by someone who's reading because they didn't have Xerox machines back then. Their Xerox machines had run out of ink, toner, and they didn't have refill cartridges. 
So when they needed to make copies of the Bible, what they would do is either have one fellow sit there and look at it and write it out next to it, or if they wanted to make multiple copies, they'd get a row of 10 people, give you some papyrus, give you an inkwell and a pen, and somebody would start reading. And everybody would be sitting there writing. And so someone's up there reading and he gets to Epaphroditus and, it's, and it sort of sounds like Epaphroditus to someone else. And so someone writes it Epaphroditus instead of Epaphroditus. And then somebody else takes that one and translates, uh, writes copy from that copy. That's why scripture is very reliable. This is, this is silly. But I will tell you this. I Just for grins, I threw it up here. One of the oldest papyri that we've got, one of the oldest copies of Philippians, P46, dates within 100 years of Paul's writing. And here it is. Right here, I have to step away from it to see it. Right here, you've got E-P-A-P-H-R-O-D-E-I. T-O-N, Epaphroditon, Dayton, E-I is an A sound, like eight, Epaphroditon. See, that's an E-I. Paul uses his name again in Philippians 4.18, and he's got it again, E-I, Epsilon Iota. That's the oldest manuscript we've got. It's got E-I in it. Now, we've also got another old one that's very reliable, that's just like the best of the best in some ways, Codex Sinaiticus. And here it is in Philippians 2.25. Uh, E-P-A-P-H-R-O-D. Hmm. E-I or not E-I? No, that's got to be the T. You can just barely make it out. So there's no E on this one. It's just got the I. And yet, couple of chapters later where Paul uses it again and this one they stick the they, they stick it in there so it's e p a p h r o d e i t o s epaphroditus datus and then there are other manuscripts that go along both ways so which is <laughs> Epaphroditus, and and um, I, um, and you say, well, who cares? His mother. <laughs> okay, I would just like to say I'm calling him by his right name. Now it may not be because, by the way, he's named after the the Greek goddess Epaphrodite, which uh, Epaphrodite also means because um, he was from a pagan family originally. Uh, Epaphrodite also means uh, pleasure. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, Epaphroditus. See, those are the free things you get when you come in here. There is absolutely no charge for that. Now, I'm introducing him to you, and we're getting his name right. And I dare say this is probably the only church on the entire planet that discussed that this morning. Philippians 2.25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Let me introduce him to you. He's called five things here, three to Paul. He's my brother. Adelphone, we won't get to the my until the end of this clause. Uh, Moo is the my. But Adelphone, Epaphroditus, my brother, my, that's number one. Number two, my fellow worker. Whoops, sorry, little problem here with the PowerPoint but it's up there, and my fellow soldier, there, three. He's all of those things. He's my brother. He works with me soon. That's that with word again, with the word ergon, work. 
and uh, uh, my fellow soldier. Unusual for Paul to use military analogies, but there was a military outpost there in Rome, and so it was very helpful. He uses them in Ephesians for putting on the armor of God, but it's a rare analogy for Paul to use a military analogy. But he uses it here. And that's who, that's who Epaphroditus was for Paul. He's a brother, he's a fellow worker, he's a fellow soldier. Whoops, I'm having trouble with that. Stop it. He's also your messenger. He's who they had sent to Paul. He's the person that they sent and, and ministered to Paul's need. He brought their gift to Paul. So Epaphroditus is one of them who comes to Paul with their gift. And, he's, and Paul's just heaping praise on this poor fella. You say, why do you call him a poor fella? Because of what we find out about him. Look at this. Oh, stop it. Sorry. Sensitivity. That's how we'll find out about this fella. Here it is. So Paul says, he's been longing. Epaphroditus has been longing for you all. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. Now, there are a bunch of commentators who give Epaphroditus a really raw job. They say, if you read this carefully in the Greek, it seems to indicate that he was having some psychological problem. He was homesick. He was unstable mentally. No, that's not. That's, that's reading into the text in the Greek, not reading out of it. He's sick. He was sick to the point of death, near to death. This word, paraplasion, um, is the word translated near. It means like next door neighbor. It's used in uh, uh, common Greek for someone who lives next door to you. He was living right next door to death. He was knocking on death's door. But... God had mercy on him. I love that. This is the situation. And then the but God totally changed the whole story. And that's the kind of God we worship. We worship a God who can change everything. Now, you can fairly say if God changes everything then why have I petitioned him on this and he didn't change it? If God changes everything then why did this happen? Why did so and so die? After my dad had a stroke and he's in the hospital for three, four weeks mom, a woman of prayer my sisters, women of prayer, me, my wife, my brother-in-law, all of us praying. And the but God was not, okay, dad will come out of this stroke problem and live. The but God in that situation was dad passed away February 1st, 2004. I was teaching class when we had to stop class 10 minutes early for me to go out the doors to try to get to the hospital before he passed. Now, where's the but God there? I want to tell you, Paul is not naive about death. Paul, of all people, he's already said in the letter, I'm not sure I live through all of this, and if I don't, I, I, he said, I'm even hard-pressed to decide. For me, it's a lot better that I die and go be with Jesus. But I know it's better for you if I stick on. And convinced of that, I'm going to try to stick on. For the sake of the gospel. The but God, though, is still there when someone in Jesus dies. And it goes back to that confident expectation. If Jesus isn't real, 
If Jesus wasn't really resurrected from the dead, there is no but God. But because he is, there is a but God. I don't feel bad for my dad. He's in the bosom of Abraham. He's with the Lord. He didn't get a raw deal, but God was there. Who I feel bad for are those of us who love my dad and miss him here. And that's why I say Paul's not naive about death. Paul says, I'm more the eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice, so that you rejoice at seeing him again, and I'll be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. By the way, that's not Paul whining that they hadn't done enough. That's him saying he was risking his life to complete what was lacking to me, what I needed that you gave me in service. If, if we go back just to the passage before, God had mercy, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul recognizes that if God had taken Epaphroditus at that point, and he had died. Paul would have sorrow upon sorrow. He would have grief. When someone dies, it's right to have grief. Even if they've died in the Lord. Because we miss them until we're joined again together. So we grieve, but we don't grieve like someone who has no hope. No confident expectation. And that's what Paul says. And that's how God changes everything. And that's why Paul's not naive about death. And that's what this passage stands for. And that's a glimpse into just the everyday life of Paul, of Timothy, and of Epaphroditus. So with that, let me give you the points to ponder and we'll go home. Go to church, actually. I wonder this. Could Paul find a kindred spirit in me? If Paul was looking at my life, for you, the question is you, not me. You, <laughs> you can say, no, Lanier, you've got no chance. Um, look at your own life and ask that question. Could Paul find me a kindred spirit? Would he find that I'm genuinely concerned for your welfare? Would he find I'm genuinely concerned about the interests of Christ and that that's my priority? Would he find that I keep my word even if it hurts? Will he find that I try to bear others' burdens? Will he find that I try to live everything in honor of Jesus and who he is and what he did? Would he find that I take those sinful habits and practices and I bring them to the cross and I pray that Jesus redeems that? I hope so. And it's also tied up in the question of who am I? Who are you? Who, 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 who? I really want to know. Who are you? That's a very valid question. Am I a, a, a brother to people in the Lord? Am I a fellow worker? Am I a fellow soldier? Can I be trusted as a messenger? Can I be trusted as a minister to minister to people's needs? Who am I? I, 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 I want to answer that question, and I want to answer that question in a positive way. And, and I don't want to be naive about this. I recognize, acutely recognize, that life is a journey. And, and that I'm not today what I was yesterday, and I'm not today what I'll be tomorrow. But I want to be headed in the right direction. I want God to be transforming me, as Paul says to the Corinthians, into the image of his son, little by little, day by day.
Did y'all sing that song ever? And we sang it in youth group, little by little, uh, every day, little by little, in every way, Jesus is changing me. He's changing me. Since I made a turnabout face, I've been growing in his grace, and Jesus is changing me. I want to be that. I want to be growing in him. That's one reason we, we come together. That's one reason we seek to worship. And then final point. I want to seek the but for God, but I also want to accept his plans. And, and, and that's really hard for me sometimes. But I know that God shows mercy. And I know that he's got a vision I don't. And when all is said and done, I can do no more than to trust in him. So with that, let me bless you and it's time for church. Father, in the name of Jesus, we seek your blessing. I pray that you will transform who we are into who we can be. And Father, I confidently expect you to do so because you have promised to do so when we bring ourselves to you. And so we humbly bring ourselves to you and say, please transform me into a clearer image of your son. Forgive me where I so far miss the mark. And nurture me as a shepherd does his sheep. This is our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.